Um, I do have uh, a message in my heart tonight, and I ask that you turn with me to the third chapter of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. My heart here of late has been consumed about the aspect or the uh, reality of change. I don't like change, but it seems as though it's always happening. I think that the proverb writer said well when he said that we shouldn't meddle with those who are given change. Seems like change always goes in the opposite direction of the Lord, at least according to the world's standards. I've had some change here lately in my life, and I suppose that's why it's been on my heart as I've considered just the, the impact of it, the reality of it, how it can frustrate us and it can impede us, and specifically how it can impede our walk with the Lord. We see all these changes that happen around us, and sometimes even the changes are for good, but what happens is naturally, according to the flesh, we kind of raise a skeptical eye at things that change, don't we? We have this natural reaction. We say, well, that's just a little bit different than it was before. And it makes us question it. And a lot of times there's wisdom in that questioning. I'm not saying that we shouldn't question change, but the point that I'm trying to make is it seems any time that change is in order that it is met with frustrated feelings concerning what change is in front of us. And so as we deal with this, and we think about what Scripture says about it for the believer, we see that again and again that the believer is exhorted and admonished to be steady. Christian people should be characterized and noted for their steadiness. We are told about the double-minded man in the book of James who is un, or who is, is double-minded man is, is found in this way that all their ways are unstable. Every part of them. They're unstable in every way. But what did Paul exhort to the Corinthian church considering their steadiness? He said, Be ye therefore steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We are exhorted to be a people that are steady as she goes. To be consistent. And so, more so then for the believer, when we see change, we find ourselves to be a little bit tepid concerning how we react. Nevertheless, there is one change that is necessary to a person in which their entire nature is changed. I want to talk to you tonight about change. Read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. Begin reading at verse 12. It says, Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, or we use great boldness. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, that is, with no veil, 
beholding as in a glass or beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are changed or are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We'll stop right there at the conclusion of this third chapter. Paul was writing in the lead up to the scriptures that we read here tonight, and he was comparing the glory of the Old Testament to the glory of the New Testament. And he saw that the glory of the New Testament was, was in, uh, surpassing, he used the word exceedeth, that the, the glory of the New Testament surpassed the glory of the Old Testament. And it was on this basis then, he proclaimed that he had a great boldness of speech that he was able to proclaim with great plainness of speech concerning the reason that the New Testament was glorious. And the reality of the glory of the Gospel is that what we find in it is life and liberty. We find in the nature of the Gospel the, the very call to lives to be transformed. What did the law do? You see, the law had a weakness. Paul teaches about this in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. The law had a weakness. It could not do something. What could it do? It could tell a man of his sins, but what it could not do, because of the weakness of the flesh, the law could not save the man. Paul told the Galatians, it was a schoolmaster, that you could look into the law and that you could measure yourself by it and see where you did not measure up, but because of the weakness of the flesh, the law had a weakness. It had a limit. So what then? God, as a result of the weakness of the flesh that caused the law to have this limit, He took the matter and His Son came to die for us that we might instead know the perfect liberty that is offered now underneath this New Testament Gospel. So Paul began to declare this unto the Corinthians as he continued on. And he made a comparison to Moses. And we probably know this account well. You can read over about it in the 34th chapter of the book of Exodus. About how when Moses came down to the people and he had the law, that he had to veil his face because of the glory that was radiating off of him from being in the presence of God. Now, I want you to tell you something about this veil. This veil did not hide the glory of God, but what it did do is it obscured it. They couldn't see it in its fullness. They couldn't see it plainly. In fact, it seems to me as though when we read it, it's as though they were looking at something so bright that they just couldn't, couldn't quite manage to look at it. You ever had something like that? Where, where you just kind of got it turned away and you're trying to squint and you just couldn't quite see the fullness of the glory. And so Paul is making this comparison. And he was saying they couldn't see the face of Moses. They had to veil him. And that there was a veil on their hearts also. And that the law that came and had entered into the world, it showed them their sin. But it was a schoolmaster to teach them and to take them to the one that could do something about their sin. And that this is why then that the glory of the New Testament surpassed the glory of the Old Testament. Was he saying that there was no glory in the Old Testament? No, there wasn't. But what he, or no, that's not what he was saying. There was glory. But what he was saying is that the glory here in the New Testament has surpassed it. So if we have then this glorious gospel, what is the challenge? He goes on and he begins to speak about their minds being blinded. And that even unto this day that there remaineth this same veil that is untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament. 
He said, why? He explains. And he says, because that veil is done away in Christ. I want to make this point here. We know well about how when Jesus Christ was crucified, about how His death tore the the veil of the temple that was torn in half, rent in twain, the King James puts it. That veil was the one that separated the holies of holies from the rest of the temple. Where the presence of God was, we now have bold access to God because of the atoning sacrifice of His Son, wherein we can pray and reach the throne of God. Jesus provided us that access. No longer is it necessary that we have a man go in, or a high priest go in on our behalf to make intercession for us. Jesus has done that for us, and He continues to be our advocate with the Father. Isn't that wonderful? Lost sinner today, I want you to know that you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ today has died for your sins, but He was resurrected with great power so that when the charge of the death of Jesus is held against you, the advocate that walks in to plead your case is Jesus Christ Himself. And so then we see this glorious Gospel of the New Testament. We see this glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ. And we talk about this other veil. This veil that that Paul is talking about continuing to blind their minds. I want you to know that Jesus has removed this veil as well. He's removed this veil by His life. Because this veil that had once blinded their minds was a result of the law. Brother Barry already said it tonight that none of us is good. Not a one of us have upheld the 600 and some odd laws that we read there in the Old Testament. The finest Pharisee that we would read in the Scriptures, they didn't uphold it either. There is this veil that was on their minds where they saw this law as something to be obtained, as something to grab a hold of, as though if fulfilling that law, they might themselves be made righteous. But the righteous one, given by God, came and He fulfilled that law and He fulfilled it perfectly. There was no I that went undotted. There was no T that went uncrossed. But Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled every law and every prophecy of that Old Testament. And now then, as a result of that, because of this greater testator that the Hebrew writer talked about, we have a new and glorious covenant with the Lord. This one not given in tablets of stone, but this one given by the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so then, we have this hope in Christ Jesus. And so he said, nevertheless, when it, when the person whose mind is blinded, who even unto this day, when Moses is read, this veil is on their heart, when that person shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Lost sinner tonight, I want you to know as a result of of your sins, there is a veil upon your heart. There is something this evening that has separated you from God. And I want you to know you are so far removed from God, there is a gulf, as we see in the 16th chapter of the book of Luke, it is as though there would be a gulf fixed between you that no one could span across. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But I want you to know that Jesus Christ died, that you could be brought into one 
with the Father. He gave His life that you would not remain separated from God. So how how's that brought about? Verse 17 says, Now the Lord is that Spirit. Now what Spirit was He talking about? Earlier on in this same chapter, if we go back to verse 6, See, we had a pasta dinner tonight, and pasta is known to make people sleepy. So, Brother Chris has rigged the sound system every once in a while to give you all a jolt. <laughs> but if we go back to verse 6, it says, Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, not of the law, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth. The law is in, in which a man finds his sin and his separation being lost and separated or dead in their sins. But the Spirit, the Spirit of God, gives life. And so it, it's that Spirit that Paul now here is explaining in verse 17. He says, now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. For you right now who are lost in your sins, you may not realize it, but you are a slave to sin. You are caught up into bondage. You are as though you are shackled and chained to sin. And your sins are always in front of you. And no matter what you do, you can't escape them. You can't be good enough to rid yourselves of them. You can't go far enough away that you can somehow leave them behind. And so your sins are always with you. You're a slave to them. Slave is, or excuse me, sin is your master. And you are sin slave. But the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There are people today who they look to religion and they say, well, I can never have a part of religion. And they just completely look at it and they shun it. And they say, well, it's just a bunch of rules and, and all these things that you have to live up to. What they fail to realize is that what we truly find in the Spirit of the Lord is life-giving freedom. Our lives are no longer bound up in sin. We've been redeemed from it. Listen, there had to be a price paid to set us free. And Jesus Christ paid that price once and for all. And He paid it in full. So no longer can anything be held against the part of the redeemed. Why? Because Jesus Christ has purchased us. And the Spirit then that has come to dwell in our hearts in which God Himself has set up habitation with His people now has given us Freedom. Isn't that wonderful? Is there anything better than the freedom given by the Spirit of the Lord? You know, sometimes the Spirit, when it comes and bears witness with us, it just sets us so much at freedom that I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but it just feels like I could just fly away. I'm set at such liberty and freedom from this world. And it's as though this world has, has no hold on me. Gravity itself cannot touch me. Why? Because the one who is above, he is the one who elevates my spirit heavenward. There's freedom where the spirit's found. 
That's one reason tonight, church, why we exhort so strongly. And, and, and my, I myself, and Brother Barry himself, we, we must follow the Spirit of the Lord. Why? Because when the church is freed up by the Spirit of God, we worship and we exalt the name of Jesus. There is a spirit of freedom that is brought here. And that freedom being so far away from the reality of the sinner who is enslaved to sin, it becomes the evidence, evidence of the separation between the sinner and the saint. And that separation, that, that, that difference, it awakens the sinner to their need to be saved. Church, listen to me tonight. It is critical that we follow the Spirit of the Lord. And I know you've heard that time and time again, but I want that to be awakened in your spirit brand new tonight of your need to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's something that, I'm going to use the word pride, and I mean it in the right way. That's something we as Baptists pride ourselves on. That we believe in following the leadership of the Spirit. There's no set order to our service and those sorts of things. But I'm tired of just believing it. I want to follow it, don't you? So let's follow the Lord. Because He has given us this liberty. And then verse 18, this is where I wanted to get to tonight. He said, but we all, with no veil, with open face, we behold as in a glass that is in, the, in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So Paul's been talking about and contrasting the glory of the Old Testament, the glory of the New Testament. He gets here to this last verse of the third chapter, and he says, we all, with no veil, we look as though we are looking into a mirror and we see the glory of the Lord. Now, I want to talk for a minute, and I, I bet you've done this. You, you look in a mirror, and what do you see when you look in a mirror? Well, you see yourself, right? But is that is that truly yourself? I guess yes and no. Yes, it, it it's really you. I'm sorry if you don't like what you see. It's really you. But no, it's not really you. It's an image. You are seeing the reflected image that you are casting into that glass that you're looking at. And so that image then, it looks just like you. But didn't you hear what Paul wrote? He said, but we, with no veil, with open face, we behold as in a mirror, not ourselves, but the glory of the Lord. He says, we look. We no longer see that sin riddled, that, that one who had fallen short time and time and time again, in whom there was no righteousness found, in whom their righteousness, Isaiah said, was as filthy rags. There was nothing good about them. We would at once look in the mirror and we would see a no good sinner. But now, with no veil, we see what? The glory of the Lord. Now listen. He says, in our changed, we are being transformed. All right, now, young folks, I need you to listen to me because old folks aren't going to get this. But I know y'all use Snapchat and Instagram and all these things, and they have these filters on them. And you can put these filters on them, and you can take a picture, and you can make yourself look like a cat or a dog or all these different things. I, I don't want to know the half of it. <laughs> but you can do that, can't you? And a smile. She confirmed what I'm saying. So you can do that. Now, you do that, but you're not really a dog. You're not really a cat. 
So what you're doing, in essence, is you're trying to change the image that you're looking at when you do those things. Here, what we see is that we behold and we see into this glory of the Lord. And as a result of what we see, Paul notes that we are being transformed into the reality of what it is that we see. We are being changed to be more likened to Jesus Christ. Believers, listen to me. If you have been truly born again, if you've been truly saved by the grace of God, your life should be reflecting a continual work, a progressive work, in which you are made more like unto Jesus Christ. A hallmark of the believer should be that they are day by day being made more like Jesus. That we are being changed. You see why I said there's an essence in which I don't like change. But there is change for the believer that we must look to. And we must judge our lives. Are we being shaped and made? Is this image that we would bear in the mirror, is it becoming a reality? Are we being transformed? Is there evidence that we are being made more like Jesus day by day? Paul said this about it. He said that God had predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. That means that God's predetermined will for the life of a believer is to be more like His Son. You see that? I know lots of people question. They say, I don't know what God's will is for my life. Let me give you an answer. God's will for your life is that you would be made more like Jesus. Are you living according to the will of God? I want to talk about this word conform. Over in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans, you probably know those first two verses well. Paul's come out of those first 11 chapters of that book and we see just a a, a beautiful exposition concerning the gospel, the reality for the Jew, the reality for the Gentile. And he gets to the 12th, 12th chapter. And he says, Therefore, we beseech you, brethren, he goes on in the second verse and he says that we would not be conformed to this world. There is this issue of conformity. We are told to be conformed to the image of His Son and not to be conformed to this world. Now, I've heard these verses in the 12th chapter of the book of Romans preached upon many times. And probably the best example I've ever, ever heard concerning this idea of conformity is to consider an ice cube tray. I know a lot of people have ice makers in their homes nowadays, but I remember growing up, we had ice cube trays. And we'd fill those up with water and we'd stick them in the freezer and a couple of hours later, we'd get that out and and that that water would make ice. What shape was that ice in? Well, it was in the same shape as the tray that we put the water in. That water had been conformed to the shape of that ice cube tray. Paul calls us away from being conformed to the shape that the world would mold us in. In fact, the reality of the word conform, that's exactly what it means. You have con, meaning that it would be with something. And then form, meaning a shape, that we'd be with the shape of the world. And he calls us away from that. He says, don't be given, don't be shapen unto the world. But instead, he says that we'd be transformed. What's that word transform mean? It means changed. That we be changed. In fact, the word transform means across or beyond the shape. 
<laughs> Isn't that cool? That we'd be beyond the shape of this world. That we'd be transformed. Where? Into a world to come. That would be shaped and made into one who is a citizen of heaven. And we are. Brother Barry talked about it last night. We're pilgrims here. We're nothing but passing through. We're strangers and we're looking for a far better country. We're just sojourning here in this land for a little while. But we all have a much better place to go. And so let us, instead of being conformed to this world, let us continue day by day conforming to the image of His Son, bearing His likeness, beholding His glory, and may His glory then radiate out of us just like it did Moses. Have you ever been around somebody that's just, I mean, they're just right with the Lord. the only way I know to put it. They're prayed up. The Spirit just seems to just be manifested around them all the time. I don't know what happens to you, but what happens to me is I just kind of grab a hold of their coattails and I just go for the ride. I like that. You see, God's made me a new creature inside and He's drawn to that. This flesh, it's still drawn to, it has this tendency towards things that are of the world, but inwardly, this, this, this new creature that God is desiring to make in the flesh be more like Jesus. It has an attraction to where the Spirit is. Why? Well, didn't we read it? Where the Spirit is, there's liberty. And so when we're around the Spirit, it is as though we get a little glimpse, a little taste as it would be of home. When you go to big cities, they have these little communities. They have these little communities, we'll give them names like Little Italy or Little Mexico and these different places. And there are these little communities where people who have come in from other places and they've immigrated here to the United States or to these big cities, they'll come and they'll begin to congregate with people that are like them. And it's like they bring a little bit of their culture into these big cities. That's how the church should be. Now we're strangers down here. We're foreigners. We get around each other. There's a little culture of heaven that surrounds God's people. So that when we get together, it's like we're, we're just bringing together a little, a little bit of heaven. When, when God's people come together, and then His Spirit comes in, it takes up residence amongst His church, as Paul talked about in the book of Ephesians, and there it abides with His people. And before long, those that come to it, they start flocking and saying, I've heard about this little community. I've heard it's just otherworldly. I've heard there's something about it that, that has been transformed. It's not like the rest of this world. You see, there's people, they go to New York City and they say, I want to go visit Little Italy or Chinatown or these different places. They become stops that people hear about that they want to go and be a part of. May the Lord's church be a people who are so filled with the glory of God being changed day by day, being predestined into the image of, of His Son, that we are being made more like Jesus day by day, such that the reality of our lives is evidence not only of our conversion, but that it becomes evidence of the destination that we're bound for. That when people are around us, they say, you seem like you're not from here. My wife and I will be driving in places, and I have a comment that I like to make when I make a 
a mistake when I'm driving. And I know somebody behind me probably got a little irritated. I say, I'm from out of town. Don't be mad at me. I'm from out of town. One time I was down in Lafette, Tennessee, where Brother Barry's from. I was down there and, and, and I was with Brother Daniel, with Brother Barry's son. And, and we were driving and he was in his car with me. And, and you see up here, we follow each other a little more closely than they do down there. And, and I was just following the person in front of me, just like I always do. And Brother Daniel was saying, Derek, you're good right on this guy's tailgate. I said, David, I'm not even close to him. What do you mean? I'm not on this guy's tailgate at all. And he said, he's going to get mad at you. And I said, come on, he's not going to get mad at me. It wasn't but a minute further down the road, that car pulled over. And I hurried up and got around him. He was giving me what for. Daniel was right. But I said, I'm not from here. <laughs> I'm a stranger. <laughs> there should be an evidence amongst us. That we're not from here. We're different. There's a mark upon us. We're believers. We're brothers. We're sisters. I've heard it said about missionaries. They'll go to different countries. And they'll ultimately look and they'll identify in the areas that they would go to if there's brothers there or if there's sisters there. Why? Because even though they're far from home, they find people from the same country that they are. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Tonight, to the believer, I want to issue to you a warning. If your life is not marked by this change, wherein you look in the mirror as though you behold the glory of God and you are being transformed into the image of His Son day by day, if that is not evidence in your life, you need to make your calling and election sure. If you say that you are saved and you're relying upon something that happened a long time ago, but there's been no evidence of your salvation for some 30, 40, however long, you would do well tonight to examine yourself, to spread it all out before the Lord and make sure that you're saved. Listen, it's not worth your pride to die and go to hell. Transformed. I want to close by reading one other passage of Scripture. Over here in the book of Acts. and I want to turn my attention just for a moment to the lost. Let's, let's go ahead and read. Uh, I hate to be lengthy in this reading, but we'll see how far we get. Read with me in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. If you're here tonight and you're lost, I want your attention. <clears throat> We're going to read the account, lost person, of, of somebody getting saved. So you do well to listen tonight. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. I want to read to you about a, a guy named Saul. I'll give you a hint. You want it to stay that way. But the first verse of the ninth chapter of the book of Acts says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter, bringing out threatenings and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest. And he desired of the high priest's letters to Damascus, to the synagogues there, that if he found any of this way, meaning any believers, any disciples of Jesus, whether they were men or women, that he might bring them bound, that he might take them as prisoner and bring them back to Jerusalem. 
And as he journeyed, he came near into the city of Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which were journeying with, with Saul stood speechless, hearing a voice, but not seeing a man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were open, he saw no man. They led him by the hand and brought him in to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. I just want to stop real quick. I want you to see the difference of what Ananias said in response to the Lord versus what Saul said. Saul said, Who is that, Lord? Ananias said, here I am. It's so much better to be a believer. <laughs> that when I hear the voice of the Lord, I say, here I am, Lord. <laughs> what? You, you called. <laughs> oh, sinner, tonight, the Lord's calling to you. Listen, Saul said rightly, who is that? That voice was unfamiliar to him, yet still familiar, it seems. Did you hear what he said? He said, who is, is that? Lord? As though he was saying, Lord, is, is, is that you? Tonight, sinner, the Lord is calling to your heart. You would do well to answer that call and find that you would come to know the One who is calling. And Ananias said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise! and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And he hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. Saul was so bad that his reputation preceded him. Ananias had heard about this man. He wanted no part of him. He knew that he desired to persecute the church. And that he knew that he wanted to destroy, not just mess up, he wanted to destroy the believers that he would come across. He says, And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on my name. So somehow or another, that Paul went to the high priest to get these letters to Damascus and made its way even to Ananias. But the Lord said unto Ananias, He said, Go thy way. For he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and he entered into the house of Judas. And he putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes that had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and he arose, and he was baptized. 
And when he had received meat, when he had ate, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, and straightway, immediately he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for that same intent that he might bring them bound into the chief priest? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And I like how the King James puts it. That this is very Christ. We have here, and I apologize for the length of reading. It's a conversion experience worth telling about all these years later. Saul had went about persecuting the church. We see his name referenced earlier when Stephen was stoned to death. He was the cloak bearer for that mob that was there to stone Stephen. And here we find that he's going to Damascus to do the same until Jesus stops him there on this road. And I want you to specifically see something. We see the interaction and surely we know the transformation that Saul underwent where he went from persecuting the church to one who was declaring that this is very Christ. Just a little while later. We see the evidence of a life transformed. But I want to look a little bit more narrowly because we see that transformation in still a much simpler lens and a much more immediate lens. When, when Paul had this interaction with Jesus on the road to Damascus, it says that he was shaking, he was trembling, he fell to the earth, but that when he stood back up and he opened his eyes, but he couldn't see. He was like that for three days. For three days he abode in Damascus after he was led with those that were journeying with him by the hand into the city. He's in Judas's house. And I can just about picture Paul there. And he's alone. Can't see anyone. He's not eating. And he's not drinking. Something had happened to him. He had came upon the gospel. He had came upon the one that was sent to save. And he wasn't like he used to be. There's a lot of debate about when exactly in this testimony was Paul saved. And I'm not here to debate that with you. But I want you to see the evidence of what's taking place throughout this testimony. Paul was in bad shape. You see, the one that he had persecuted because he believed that the disciples that followed this man Jesus were following a blasphemer. He believed, according to the Jewish law, that this one who proclaimed himself to be the Son of God, that he was blaspheming. And that his disciples were blaspheming also, believing someone that had came and had been crucified and been resurrected, that he was the Son of God. And so he was coming to, to, to persecute them. But now he's had an experience with him. And he's been stopped by him. And he's not the same. He was a mess. He couldn't see. I don't know if he could have ate if he wanted to, but he wasn't eating. He wasn't drinking. But somehow or another, in that state, God brought to him a vision. Do you see that? When, when Jesus called to Ananias, he said that Paul's praying. 
that he had received a vision, Paul had, of a man named Ananias coming unto him. Paul had found trouble, had changed his entire countenance. He was a mess. And he was praying. God blessed him with a vision. Let me tell you something real quick. If God's working on you, I want you to make no mistake that God's working on His end as well. God doesn't leave us helpless or rudderless. He is a very present help in our time of need. And so as a result of that, right now, sinner, God is working with you. I want you to know that He's not working with you in vain. He's not working on you to your, to your harm. Instead, He is working on you to your good. Yes, Paul found himself to be blind and, and hungry and thirsty, having not ate or drank in three days here in the house of Judas, but he was praying and God was listening and God was responding. And he had a vision of Ananias coming that he might receive his sight. And God went to the other side of town and he was talking to Ananias. Ananias said, I've heard about this Saul. He said, you've heard about him, but you've not heard what I'm going to do with him. Isn't that awesome? I don't care how bad you've been. I don't care how bad you are right now. The Lord transforms lives. And if you are here tonight and you are lost, you need an experience with the transformative power of God. That is the reality of salvation. That is the essence of what it means to be saved. Is that you would come underneath the gospel and you would hear it being preached and it would prick your heart by the Spirit of God and God Himself would draw you by His Spirit unto Himself and there, bowed before Him, calling out upon His name, trusting that He is the only one that can save. He Himself will do something in which you would never be the same. Listen to me. Anyone who has had an experience with God, they're not the same. And if you are the same, you've not had an experience that has saved your life. I want to make sure that's clear. If you say that you're saved and you go, go about right away, Living as you did before, there, there's something there that, that's not measuring up. So Ananias comes to the house of Judas and he says, Brother Saul, <laughs> I've been sent by God that thou mightest receive thy sight. And he lays hands on him and says, Right away, as those scales fell from his eyes, and he received his sight, and straightway Paul began following the Lord. Again, you can argue about when in this exactly Saul was saved. I can't tell you. But what I do know, as Brother Barry has talked about each night so far, Saul left to go to Damascus one way. And when he came back, he was altogether different. That is the transformative power of the Gospel of Jesus. That is why the New Testament is more glorious. Its glory surpasses 
the Old Testament. And that tonight, lost friend, is why I call to you that if the Spirit of the Lord is dealing with you, please, please, please follow. Please. As God would bid you to come, follow Him. I need to say something else. I debate on saying this, but just quickly. To you tonight who are here and you're saved, you've heard it preached before about the disciples, about how they left everything to follow Jesus. And that's exactly what they did. Some were tending their nets, some were with their parents different accounts, different ways in which they were called. But they left. They forsook all. And they followed Jesus. I'm afraid that in this 21st century, what that looks like has been obscured to some of us to forsake all and to follow Jesus. So I want to call our attention back to that same word that I I open with this evening. It is about a change. A change. Have you been changed? Are you still who you used to be? Have you been changed? Set and made completely different. A new creature in Christ Jesus. A change. Believer, has a change been wrought in your heart? And if so, is that change continually with you, working in you to make you more like Jesus? Lost sinner tonight, maybe you look and you don't like what you see. And you look into a mirror. Or you look into a mirror and you see a sinner. I want you to know tonight that you can be changed too. There's a pretty popular, or was popular, I'm still is or not, Contemporary Christian song that you hear on the radio. The lyrics will talk about if you're lost, he's a way maker. If tonight you look and you say, Derek, my life, it shows my sin, its evidence is before me. There is a need for me to be changed. I want you to know that he is a Change maker. Tonight, will you be changed? Brother Jeff, we can get a song. I know my thoughts have been scattered. <laughs> Double barrel a little bit. But tonight, I want you to consider and look into the mirror of your own heart. And I want you to ask yourself what you see. Are you seeing the glory of God that is transforming your life day by day? Or are you seeing a sinner lost and separated from God with no hope at the end of the way? One who has found himself to be so far astray and lost in their sins, so far separated from God that you stand in a desperate need tonight to come underneath the life changing power of God. Do you look tonight, believer, and you say, I see one who looks a little more raggedy than they used to, 
but one in whom the power of God has been upon before. And who's desiring to, to quicken again, to restore the joy of your salvation. Tonight, if you're in need of change, come to the table. Let's stand and let's sing.